Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 26 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill, and this podcast is based on the history and events linked to the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, written in the 1840s about his time as an engineer in Europe and subsequently the rest of the world. If you're tuning in again, thanks for doing so. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, then uh, welcome. So I just thought I'll say a few things about the episode coming up. Obviously, last episode was a bit different because it mainly involved the interview I did with Anthony Dawson, the railway historian, about the development of the early railways, which um, obviously is the time in the 1840s when William is doing his train driving, which was great. It was very kind of Anthony to do that interview, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. It certainly, as I said at the time, enlightened me on a lot of things which I didn't know about. So on this episode, I suppose I had better explain where we'd got to in the journals that um, William has written. So in episode 24, as opposed to 25, William had just been involved in the uh, if you like the grand opening of the railway that runs from Milan to Monza and he had been driving the train with the viceroy of Austria on board the archbishop of Milan all the kind of local dignitaries in front of a large crowd basically as the grand opening ceremony or grand opening day of the railway on that occasion and that's pretty well where we've got to at that point. Now, in this next episode, as I did explain at the end of the last episode, what William then does is he invites you, as the reader, to join him on the footplate. As it twere. As it twere. As it twere. Didn't Family Guide do a whole thing about saying twere? I think they did. As it twere. Uh, anyway. Um, as it were, on the footplate of the steam locomotive, and then he's going to guide you as a, the accompanying person through the journey and pointing out uh, left and right all the sights and sounds that you see as you make your journey along the 10 miles of track that runs from the centre of Milan to the centre of Monza. And so it begins in that vein... And then after that, he talks about some of the incidents. There's a few statistics about how many passengers he carries and uh, a few interesting incidents, shall we say. I'm not going to divulge them at this moment, but some interesting incidents that uh, 
happen during his time superintending, as he says, the railway from Milan to Monza. I'll just quickly run through the usual things. If you want to engage with me in terms of any feedback or so forth, there is um, the Twitter account, which is or X account, which is probably the easiest way. That's called Scott of the Historic at 3G Grand Tour. So that's the number three, 3G Grand Tour. There's a Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. It's a Mastodon account, GG Grand Tour. That's at Scotted at Universodon.com. All those are ways you can get in touch with me about the podcast and anything that may be of interest to you, or perhaps you can enlighten me on some things that I don't know about myself, which uh, is quite a lot. (laughs) Uh, There's a great deal which I don't know, so any help is more than welcome. That's really about it. I, I don't think there's much point in dragging this out. As the intro for this episode, it's quite an interesting one. I hope you enjoy the various elements of it. I'd say it's kind of a contrasting episode, really. <laughs> Two very distinct bits to it. There's the description of the line that William gives, or the journey from Land to Monza, and then there's the um, the sort of instants and facts and figures that he quotes near the end as well. So um, there's t- they're kind of two distinct parts to this particular episode and what's happening. The podcast is available on all podcast platforms, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Podbean, Podbay, Podtastic, whatever the medium where you get your podcasts, it's out there. So um, by all means, tune in. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I would say about three quarters, perhaps a little bit more, three quarters through the first journal. Just to explain, the original journals were written in three volumes and were about at this point we're about three quarters of the way maybe a little bit more through the first journal and um, actually William is beginning to come to the end of his time in Milan because he spends two years there doing the train driving before he leaves again and makes his way back through Europe again but this time over the Alps but along the Rhine and up to if you like the more northern part of Europe finally getting to Belgium, where he then gets the ship back to the UK. I do hope you enjoy this episode, and as I said, it does begin with William inviting you as an accompanying, or perhaps shall we say as a a junior engineer or junior railway driver, onto the footplate so he can take you through the journey from Milan to Monza. So come, gentle reader, here is an engine ready. Step on the footboard and accompany me to Monza. Well, we are moving. You see that large building on the right? That is called the Paggio Massara. It was built by Signor Filippo Massara and consists of a large hotel, several shops, dwelling houses, wine stores and warehouses. The father of its owner accumulated a large fortune by dealing in English glass and earthenware, which the son expended on this edifice, and carries on the same business in part of it, leading the life of a miser. But see, we are leaving the station over a viaduct, with a gentle curve to the left, and at the moment we pass the gates, you are amongst the gardens and vineyards. 
That large dark-looking building at a short distance on the right was formerly an extensive monastery, but was suppressed by Napoleon, and is now the extensive dyeing and cotton printing works of Messrs Cavalla and Co., one of the largest establishments of that description in Italy. Now you see the line stretching before you, far as the eye can reach. But what is that lofty tower with a flagstaff on the top? That is the observation tower, for the purpose of hoisting signals when the trains appear in sight, and also in case of stoppages and accidents happening. Happily, during the period of my superintendence, it never had to be used for the latter purpose. Directly opposite to it, you see the railway tavern, kept by a jolly good-natured fellow, as it was ever my lot to meet with. He keeps a good table, good wine, passable cigars, has a buxom wife, and a couple of handsome daughters, but more than likely they are married, and off his hands by this time. There is a lofty belvedere, so that's a type of summer house. There is a lofty belvedere attached to the tavern for the accommodation of visitors, from which they may enjoy a beautiful prospect of the country for many miles around. Its vicinity to the railway also attracts many visitors in fine weather. We next pass the Casina Abadessa, a small hamlet with a little chapel, a washing place and bleaching ground. Hitherto it has been all gardens and vineyards, the purple grapes hanging in luxuriant festoons almost within reach of your hand. In a moment after passing the Abadessa, we are over the River Chevis. So I think this actually could be either a canal there, because I can't find any reference to River Chevis, so I think it could be a, an old canal. There are quite a few of these ancient canals in uh, Milan, so it could have well been mistaken as a river by uh, William, and given this name, I don't know. But it could also be the River Cervezo. I've really hunted high and low to find a reference to the River Chevis and can't but there is a river Cerveso in this area and there is this uh, canal that also links to it. Naviglia della Martesana. And um, this whole area has actually been covered over by now, so it's probably a little more than a drain these days, but uh, in William's time it may well have been a river or canal open to the air. And this uh, area of Abadessa... It is there. It's a kind of tiny little area, and I think there is a little chapel there. I've seen a picture of a little chapel there, but it's literally almost just like a, you know, you'd almost describe it as a town square as part of a big city now. But uh, that little chapel he describes probably is the one that he's looking at. But now, behold, the scene is changed and we are bounding along green meadows and amongst majestic trees. Look to the right, and there stands one of the lights of other days. That is the Casina di Pome, or Apple, Hotel, one of the most celebrated and fashionable places of resort during the Empire of Napoleon. Its illuminated gardens, its shady bowers, its fountains and waterfalls, its splendid concerts and ballrooms, all mouldering to decay. Its spacious dining halls silent and deserted, and its immense cellars guiltless of the glowing juice of the grape. On the left, behold those shady trees and the pleasant and retired walls that wind amongst them. Objects that often during my residence in the country carried my thoughts back to England and the scenes of my earlier days. I am not able to divine. So that's like discover as in water divining. I am not able to divine the cause, but no place nor any of the incidents of my life are fixed in such vivid colours on my mind as the scenery and the events that took place during my residence there. 
At this moment, after an absence of two years, and at a distance of 9,000 miles, I can see every object as plain in the eye of the mind, as if it were really present before me. So, as we know, William is writing these journals a few years later in Mexico. So, interesting, yeah, he says two years, which I suppose that does make sense. He's, he must have started writing his journal fairly early in his time of his residence in Mexico. But here we are at Segnanino, on the left, a pretty and clean little village. Here, a nobleman's villa faces the line, and the pleasure grounds extend to its verge. Here, all again, is vineyards and gardens. At a short distance opposite on the right is the village of Greco. It has a fine church with a lofty tower, and the interior is decorated with some beautifully executed frescoes by Bernardino Luini. So he lived from 1480 to 1532. Again amongst the meadows, we are flying through a cutting, some 10 or 12 feet in depth, on emerging from which we cross the small river Cecino by a low wooden bridge, just clearing the surface of the water then round a slight curve and across the turnpike road from Milan to Monza. In an oblique direction, the next moment you appear to be dashed headlong against a wall, and before you have recovered from your confusion, you find the train standing in front of the station Sesta San Giovanna. The village of Sesto San Giovanna contains about 3,000 inhabitants and possesses a handsome and richly decorated church and a considerable number of very pretty villas with beautiful gardens and pleasure grounds, chiefly belonging to wealthy inhabitants of Milan. From this village, a broad and shady avenue proceeds direct to the gates of the royal palace at Monza. The company have a small and neat station here, part of which is occupied as an inn. So, just stop here to discuss a few things that William's talked about. Some of them I've mentioned already, but the first thing I think early on in this section... He discusses these railway observation towers. And uh, as you may remember, well, I discussed these with Anthony in the previous episode when we were talking about the development of the railways and he said he hadn't heard of a railway with these towers before. As I said to Anthony, I'm not sure at what intervals along the track these were placed. There is a picture of one on one of the posters about the railway that was produced at the time. And they're quite nice-looking structures, actually, um, rather like a kind of small lighthouse in form with a balcony at the top where, obviously, someone would stand waving a flag. In the illustration on the poster, there's several people and this enormous great big flag dangling over the side of it, which seems a bit over the top. And then it's got a nice little uh, dome on the very pinnacle of it. Quite a nice structure, but I would imagine there's been no evidence of them there any more, which seems a shame. And as I say, I don't really know how many along the line there were. I speculate maybe every mile, I would thought, the distance you could see down the track, or perhaps maybe they were at either end of the um, line, you know, maybe a mile from Monza and a mile from Milan, um, so people could see the trains approaching and then make various signals, and perhaps in between they were less frequent or none at all, I don't know but quite an interesting feature and, as Anthony said, probably an improvement on the safety and signalling systems that had been so far produced in the UK because at least they're nice and high up and um, the visibility would have been better. Uh, I like this little bit that he says uh, about the uh, the railway tavern and the landlord with his buxom, <laughs> buxom wife and his lovely daughters. I'm sure William spent... Many a happy hour in there. Um, 
smoking his mediocre cigars <laughs> and uh, other things and uh, observing his his buxom wife and uh, daughters <clears throat> and um the other thing i just thought i'd mention is this casina de pom or well that sort of translates in italian as apple hotel which he makes this reference to so the casina de pom i mean it's described as a courtyard farmhouse it is still there it doesn't look particularly impressive, to be honest, and I'm slightly wondering if um, this is exactly the building that William's describing here that Napoleon would have used. But um, looking at the history of it, it does mention uh, that at some point um, famous people stayed there, and one of them is Napoleon Bonaparte, so uh, uh, the other is Giuseppe Garibaldi. So, I mean, it's been turned into um, residential flats now or homes, but it is right on this canal that we were talking about that, that's in this area that the railway crosses sometimes. So I'm pretty convinced now that when William calls it a river, he's actually referring to this canal called Naviglia della Martesana. Martisana. <laughs> Sorry, poor Italian pronunciation. There's quite a nice picture of it in 1837, so not long before William is talking about. I suppose it was quite a grand building in those days. In fact, in the background of this, there's a slightly taller building that does look a bit more sort of grand. So maybe William's kind of referring to that whole whole kind of thing. I mean, it's obviously been adapted and changed over the years. I think it was a kind of well-known stopping place because it is on this main route from Milan to Monza. It does actually date back a long way, back to the 15th century, and uh, it was actually commissioned by one of the sorts of family, one of the dukes. Um, so, you know, it is old, built in the 15th century. At a time, it says here, at the same time as the planting of apple orchards enlarged in the 16th century. So... Obviously, I suppose they, they wanted to build a big orchard there or plant a big orchard and have an accompanying building next to it. But it does say over the years it became a hotel in the 18th century as it was on the main Milan-Monza route and a horse-changing point. And it says the last use it was active until the advent of modern transport. So railways, I suppose. So probably the railways that William's on <laughs> marked the end of this being used as a, a hotel for many travellers. From the 1970s onwards and throughout the following decade, the Casino de Pomme became a fashionable restaurant frequented by politicians and celebrities. The restaurant was then closed and the only remaining active public establishment in the farmhouse is a pub stroke brewery, while the remaining part of the architectural complex is now made up of residential accommodation. Since the end of 2018, the restaurant area has been converted to offices and houses. <coughs> And apparently there's a little iron bridge as well that's historically built, that was built at the beginning of the 20th century, known as the Safe Bread Bridge. It was called the Safe Bread Bridge, as in your daily bread, because there was a candle works nearby that employed a lot of people. And I think it employed people who found it difficult to get employment at other places. So it was called the Safe Bread Bridge, as like your daily bread, getting your daily bread. If you worked in this candle factory, you went over the bridge and you were going to get your daily bread working at this candle factory. The other feature that is still there is there's also a little park, public park there now called the Casino de Pom Garden. And uh, that's also in this area. It's funny because when you look at the pictures, William describes it as very grand, but I wouldn't describe it as that. I'd describe it as a more old-fashioned sort of rural-looking building, but 
Obviously, I suppose he was aware of its history. Maybe he was talking it up a bit. <laughs> now, the next thing I thought I'd talk about is Bernardino Luini, the artist that I mentioned his birth and death dates as I was reading that bit. Because William mentioned so many artists, sometimes there's very little known of them and there's just literally a name and their birth dates and there's not a huge amount more to know. You know, it might just say was a, an artist in Milan. But funny enough, Bernardino Luini is one of the more interesting ones that he mentions because he was sort of a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci and he was actually described as being in Leonardo's circle and actually being employed by Leonardo to assist with his works. In fact, quite a lot of Luini's works are often attributed to Leonardo and vice versa. Apparently one thing he was quite famous for is a particular way of the way he drew his subjects' eyes. And uh, apparently Nabokov, the writer, described some paintings have, having Luini eyes, which means they were slightly slanty or elongated. Maybe a bit cat-like, I don't know. I've looked at some of the pictures, they don't look particularly slanty or cat-eyed to me. But anyway, obviously Nabokov thought different. Interesting thing here. Because uh, recently I've heard some documentaries as well about Leonardo. And of course he was involved in so many things and had something that, you know, all these engineering uh, innovations that he came up with and all the other stuff that he did that it's sort of become apparent that actually the, the actual artworks he himself completed was very, very few. Because I think the Mona Lisa took him about 20 years to do. <laughs> and um, so in this context, Luini... You know, he had these helpers such as Luini, who was actually sounds like was pretty well established artist in his own right by the time he'd progressed in his career. But they'd say only really 20% of the works that Leonardo is said to have done in truth were actually genuinely done by him. And Luini is a prime candidate for being the person who did a lot of Leonardo's works that are now attributed to Leonardo. So I thought that was quite interesting that um, he, uh, I hate to draw the compar no i like to draw the comparison actually with the modern art where um you get people like damien hurst who say i've done this great piece of art this great sculpture or whatever it is he's done and you think well you had the idea but the actual people who did the cold face work shall we put it this way don't get a mention and um so <laughs> i'm speaking up for the likes of luini who aren't so well known and also the assistants to people like Damien Hurst who hardly ever get a mention who actually do the hard work of making the artworks rather than getting all the publicity about them. So there we are. Down the ages, there's the, uh, what about the workers, right? That's what I'm saying. What about the workers? It's all right having your poncy artworks, Leonardo, Damien Hurst. But what about the, the geezers who actually put in the hard graft? So um, anyway, there he is. Bernardo. Luini, look after some of these pictures. They're rather nice, actually. He should be better known than he is. Now, lastly, I was going to briefly mention where this station is that's, uh, or was, that was halfway between Milan and Monza on this original Monza-Milan line. Sesto San Giovanni, or Giovanni, I think William calls it, but it's now known as Giovanni. And this, I suppose, is an illustration of how much this area has changed from the time William's talking about it, where it's very rural and he keeps mentioning vineyards and um, fields and things like that. Because Sesto San Giovanni, which is locally known just as Sesto, in the later part of the 19th century, 
and I suppose partly because of things like the railway, grew into a very, very industrial area with big steel works and mechanical engineering firms and fair enough Campari as well, the drinks company there. So it became very industrialised, attracted a lot of people from around Italy to work there and actually was known as quite a militant part of Milan. It was actually, I think at some point someone called it the, the Stalingrad of Italy because it was such an industrial area and because of the strength of the Communist Party in the town. So I think it's actually now designated as its own sort of city within the Milan region, but I think you'd probably more describe it as a big uh, suburb, I think. But obviously the nature of the place completely changed particularly in the latter part of the 19th century because i think it said it went from 14,000 people to about 95,000 people just after the war that's the second world war and um i suppose a bit like uh docklands area here um it sort of had its ups and downs but it's kind of now a business district of milan as well obviously after william's time it changed radically and became quite a left-wing hotbed of um, italian communism don't know what William would have thought of that. <laughs> Communism, of course, didn't really exist in his day. So uh, um, <laughs> I get the feeling William would have exactly been um, sympathetic to uh, to the plight of the working classes, given his attitude to some of the people he works with and talks about in the jails. So um, maybe not a natural-born revolutionary, I would say. we must be again on the move. The line now lays straight before us, for about four miles, the greater part of which is an incline of one in two hundred feet. The ground after leaving Sesto is divided into small patches, and here vines, mulberry trees, peaches, apricots, cherry and walnut trees are in the greatest abundance. In the early spring blossoms of every hue, in the summer the glowing and tempting fruit, then in the autumn the clusters of the purple grape, the bright yellow of the Indian corn, and immense pumpkins, melons, and gourds scattered about in all directions, creeping round the trunks of the trees and over the fences, throwing out their gold-coloured flowers to the sun. After passing these we arrive at the large farmhouse of Rabina, situated in the midst of some of the most fertile meadows in the world. For two years I saw them nearly every day, and each year I saw fine crops of hay cut from them, Passing of these meadows, you again enter the gardens and leave the Casina Batalola on the left and enter the San Lorenzo cutting, about three quarters of a mile in length and a sharp curve. On clearing this, you come out of an embankment of considerable height at the foot of which is a branch of the River Lambro and a small and picturesque mill. On your left is the beautiful villa and gardens of San Lorenzo. You then pass the cemetery on the right, cross the royal gardens by a viaduct and enter the station at Monza. The station house at Monza is a large and noble saloon of one storey in height, with a well-executed portico, supported by granite columns in the Tuscan order of architecture. The interior of the saloon is Corinthian, betwixt each window are pilasters, with richly executed capitals, and painted to represent marble. This saloon is divided into two, by four columns, and a low partition, with seats and other accommodations that are similar to those at Milan. 
The ceiling is vaulted, and in the centre hangs a large and handsome glass chandelier. At one end is a café, and at the other the inspector's office and a private waiting room for the royal family, or other persons of more than ordinary distinction. In the yard is an engine shed, and a small workshop, watering place, etc., and three turnplates. Betwixt the saloon and the town is a small and neat pleasure ground, being part of what belonged to the old castle, and being rented by the proprietor of the café. This is well filled in fine weather by fashionable company. So I thought I'd just have a brief hiatus here to discuss a couple of things. Firstly, I think it's interesting here that he mentions this section of the line going from Sesto then down or up to Monza is on an incline of 1 in 200 feet. I only mention this because in the previous episode when I was talking to Anthony about the time which he records going from Monza to Milan and on average it's about 20 minutes but he does say that he's done it in 11 and I just wonder whether it was on that occasion that he did it in 11 obviously he was traveling in the direction of which the the gradient would have helped him with the speed so going from uh, Monza back to Milan I think is, is how it would have been calculating gradients and inclines it's a bit hard to picture that apparently it shares a 1 in 200 incline with the Paris-Bordeaux railway. There's an example of a 1 in 100 gradient on a railway line, and that's um, the long drag on the Settle to Carlisle line in the UK. Well, of course, the Settle to Carlisle line is a very famous line, very picturesque, but apparently that's 1 in 100, the incline on that one. And uh, the Paris-Bordeaux railway is 1 in 200, as is the Monza Milan railway or perhaps we should say the Sesto to Monza bit of it is one in 200 um, so I just I don't know why I thought I mentioned it but it was more related to this fact that I reckon that's how William managed to do the journey in 11 minutes compared to the average of 20 on that occasion he was going downhill a bit I think I'm right in saying they they do that when the Mallard broke the record as well when it was did 126 miles an hour didn't they the actual bit they recorded that speed was on a slight incline. I'll have to look that up, but somewhere in the back of my mind, that seems to ring a bell with me. I'm pretty certain they did it. I know when they were trying to record what the highest speed was of the railway train on the HS1 line in Kent, which um, obviously goes from the Folkestone to London. I think there's a section of that. I think it's the bit going over the Medway Bridge, actually, because that's got a bit of an incline in it. There, I think where there they tried to record the train at its maximum speed. Have to look into both of those, and maybe get an explanation. The Mallard steam locomotive speed record of 126 miles an hour was achieved in 1938 on the Stoke Ground gradient on the East Coast Main Line between Peterborough and Grantham. The fastest ever recorded speed of a train in the United Kingdom is the Eurostar E320, which achieved the speed of 219 miles an hour in 2015. This was on the London to Folkestone line on the Mashenden Valley stretch just outside Rochester. The other thing I just mentioned is he gets to Monza Station, and Monza Station now, although very old, isn't quite the same one as the one he's discussing. The Monza station that's now there was built in about, I think it's 1850, and um, I have actually managed to find a very old picture of the old station. 
and it's quite small, but I can see arches and a nice portico actually with four columns at the front and well, a chap on a horse with a staff or something on like it, and some ladies in fashionable Victorian attire outside. But that is just a little bit further down the track from where the Monza station is now. This picture is actually from a blog by a chap called um, David Roberts, and it's entitled The Man on the 820 from Monza to Milan. And um, it's actually fortunate because I've managed to make contact through the blog to David, who <laughs> very kindly got back to me after I'd left a message, uh, because uh, in his blog he's actually must have done quite a lot of research about the Monza-Milan railway line himself, and he mentions that the uh, driver on the first trains was British. So I left a message saying, well, <laughs> pretty certain that would be my great-great-grandfather William. <laughs> so it's been really great to uh, correspond with David, because he actually, although he's English, he lives in Monza these days, and of course he has a great deal of modern-day knowledge of the uh, geography of the area. So we've uh, we've, been <laughs> we've been discussing various things that have been mentioned in the podcast about this bit of northern Italy, really. In the blog, he mentions that there's uh, just one little last bit of the original Monza railway station left, and it's a, a water tower that's still there that you can see. I hope he doesn't mind me quoting from his blog, but it says, in the end, the old Monza station was replaced in 1884 by the current station, so it's a little bit later than I said. And he says... The old station continued to exist between the railway lines at Monza before being demolished. The water tower is still there. You can see it from the bridge as you walk from the station towards the Rinascente, I suppose, Rinascente department store. And there's a little picture of it. It's a little kind of, I think it's octagonal building in between the railway lines there. But that's, <laughs> that's unfortunately the only bit of the uh, original station. In this picture of the old station that William would have drawn the trains into it's quite a lot smaller than the one that's there now but similar sort of architecture to be honest very similar although the new one looks quite a bit bigger so that's it really i just thought i'd point out these two bits from this section of the journal about the incline really because i'm sure that's how william managed to do the run so quickly on the occasion when he did it in 11 minutes and uh, yeah just uh, some info about the old station and the new one <laughs> I shall now enter into a few statistics connected with the working of the line, number of passengers, etc., for 1840. September 13th and 14th. On these days was held a grand festival, Lombarda and Milan locomotives running with 14 carriages each train, and doing the distance in 20 and 22 minutes. October 11 and 18th. On those days alone, we carried the immense number of 14,050 passengers, having run trains consisting of 18 carriages each. At the close of the year 1840, we had carried on the line 162,968 passengers without one single accident, nearly equal to the whole population of the city of Milan.
So here there's a break in the journals and it begins 1841. And this is where William's laying out or his sort of chronological order of the journals isn't great. I suspect it's probably because he's looking back two years and so he's just taking the highlights. But anyway, this bit begins with the heading 1841. And then he continues to go through a series of incidents that happen on the railway. March 2nd. As the four o'clock train was returning from Monza, a man threw himself across the rails with the intention of terminating his existence and was cut almost to pieces, an engine weighing 15 tonnes, tender and eight carriages having passed over him. He, however, lived about two hours afterwards. I was in one of the carriages at the time, but knew nothing about the matter until the train arrived at the station. As the distance was only about half a mile, I immediately went back. When I reached the spot, they had removed the unfortunate to a small chapel near the place where it occurred, and to the latest hour of my existence I shall never forget the sight that met my gaze. There, in the middle of the chapel, sat the poor wretch on a hand-barrow, supported by two men, his right leg above the knee hanging only by a piece of skin, and the lower part of his body nearly crushed to pieces. Yes, there he sat, no hand held out to assuage his pain, big drops of sweat rolling from his brow, and his features distorted by the agony. Three or four priests were reading prayers round him, and one held a small box containing something having the appearance of ointment. At certain parts of the prayers he kept touching him on the forehead and breast, making the sign of the cross. This, I understood, was what they termed administering extreme unction. Well, they kept the poor creature at this game for above an hour, and then started with him to the hospital, but he died before they reached it. Such things as these are shocking to reflect upon. But such is the superstition of the lower classes in this, and indeed many other countries, that in cases of severe accidents it is the priest first, and the doctor afterwards. April 11th, Easter Monday, Grand Festival, carried an immense number of people on the line this day. One of the third-class passengers, having made too free at the wine-cask, did not know what he was about, so jumped out of one of the carriages during the time the train was in motion, had one of the carriages run over him, and broke both thighs. He died in hospital three weeks afterwards. May 30th, Whit Sunday, another grand festival, run fifteen trains this day, and carried above eight thousand passengers. June 12th, a person got on to the Ponte de Chevis and sat himself down to see how near to the rails he could place himself and allow the train to pass. But having miscalculated his distance, one of the steps caught him and carried away the upper part of his head, causing death a short period afterwards. June 24th, annual fair at Monza, running trains from six o'clock in the morning till nearly midnight. Passengers on this day nearly 10,000. June 29th, Festival of St. Peter and St. Paul. Came down from Monza myself in the evening with the Lambra engine and train of 22 carriages containing nearly 1,000 passengers. October 9th, on the evening of this day, as the last train was returning from Monza, a young Frenchman, by trader Glover, threw himself down immediately in front of the engine with the intention of committing suicide. But the brooms fixed in front of the engine for the purpose of cleaning the rails caught him, turned him to one side without doing him any further harm than scratching his face and rubbing off some of his long hair, a large portion of which was visible the next morning on the broom itself. 
the whole train passed by him without any of the wheels or firebox striking him. After being taken to mine hosts of the railway tavern and having his face washed, etc., he was able to walk to his lodgings in the city entirely cured of his suicidal mania. September 20th. This afternoon I was going out of the station at Milan with a train of empty carriages when I perceived a male and two females on the top of the embankment and on the narrow side of it. Having in vain called out to them to pass to the other side, I was obliged to let them take their own course. As I had foreseen, the steps caught them, turning the man a complete somerset. That's another word for a somersault. That's an older term for the word somersault. Turning the man a complete somersault, throwing his hat under the wheels where it was of course ground to powder, and finally pitching the whole three, neck and heels, down the embankment into a wide and deep ditch at the bottom fortunately without any further harm to the party than a good ducking and the jeers of the spectators. So I think this is a good place to stop at this point because William obviously is describing these facts and figures about passenger numbers etc but also there's these series of accidents that happen on the railway. I mean William up until now quite often says uh, fortunately there were no accidents during my time during the running of the railway. I mean, I suppose you could say there were no accidents to do with him <laughs> or to do with the engines or the railways <laughs> that happened during his time. But it didn't mean that accidents didn't happen. <laughs> and um, this list of events that he marks out here, of course, are pretty notable. I shouldn't really laugh. It's not amusing for those involved, but somehow one can't help seeing the funny side of it. I suppose it was because I remember reading these the first time I read the journals years ago now. And of course, they vividly stuck out to me when he describes them. So they were lodged in my memory and I knew at some point they were going to come up in the journals while we're doing the podcast. But I mean, I suppose just beginning on this figure he gives for the year 1840, he says uh, 162,968 passengers were carried on the railway that year. So that's in its first year. So I think it didn't actually open till August. So actually that's looking at um, six months really, isn't it? Or less than six months of travel taken in that year. I mean, I don't know, maybe he's taking it over a 12 month period. He doesn't explain that. But as I say, in the journals, it just stops and there's this only little heading saying 1841. And as I say, he tends to go through these accidents then at this point. So I suppose all these accidents or incidents that happen, that he mentions, happen in the second year he's there in 1841. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's this very vivid account that he gives of the poor chap who tried to kill himself and ends up in a wheelbarrow in a church having his last rites given to him by the priests around him. And I do like William's observation that it's the priest first and the doctor second in these situations. But I think, let's face it, he'd had a whole train run over him and his you know, his legs are virtually hanging off, so um, his chances of survival back in um, 1840 would not have been good. And some of these other accidents that he mentions do demonstrate what Anthony and I were discussing in the last episode about people just not being used to trains and things moving as fast as they did. I mean, to us, 30 miles an hour maybe was the sort of maximum speed one of these trains would be doing. Doesn't sound that much, but... You do have to remember that up until now, probably the fastest thing going would have been a stagecoach going at about eight miles an hour. So it is quite a big leap in speed. And obviously there's the drunken man who 
who gets off the train and he dies in hospital three weeks later after having his thighs broken. Then there's the man who gets on the uh, Ponte de Chevis, which is basically the bridge over the Chevis, which he mentions this stream or river that he calls the Chevis, which, as I mentioned before, I can't find uh, an actual reference to any waterway called the Chevis. But anyway, it's a bridge over stream. And the man, having the top of his head cut off or taken away by the passing train's steps, I don't know why, but when I read that, I do remember chuckling at William's just way of writing that, yeah. He died soon afterwards. <laughs> I think uh, it would have been pretty well immediately, I would have thought, if your top of your head was taken off. Um, <laughs> anyway, it did make me chuckle. I'm sorry. It's maybe inappropriate, but there we are. Um, and again, then in uh, June, I think this is the most passengers he mentions being carried, June 29th, 1841, when he's driving the Lambro train. And that has 22 carriages that he's pulling on that day. And he says he's carrying nearly a thousand passengers. That is an awful lot of passengers for these trains. You know, I've got to bear in mind that even in this time, the technology was fairly rudimentary. So again, referring back to last time's episode and the terrible accident that happened in the railway from Paris to Versailles, that train was well overloaded. And I, I wonder whether you would have considered William's train being overloaded on this occasion. But there we are. Fortunately, no accidents happened. And then again, there's this last instance he mentions on October 9th where the young Frenchman who was a glove maker tries to attempt suicide. So it seems, again, going back to various things we've discussed, as a means of ending your days, the steam railways seem to quite quickly catch on as a new method of ending it all, judging by the number of times that it seems to have happened and other incidents that I've come across. But anyway, this poor young Frenchman who attempted suicide, but he, he got pushed away by the brushes. So it's quite interesting. This train had these brushes on the front to keep the line clean. And in America, I think they call it a cow catcher, don't they, to knock animals off the line in the way. Um, but obviously it had some attachment put to the front of the train of brushes, and they obviously brushed the poor young Frenchman aside. Fortunately, he didn't have too much damage, and he was revived by mine hosts at the railway tavern as william puts it i i don't know maybe being administered by the buxom wife and the pretty young daughters that william <laughs> talked about maybe the the distressed young frenchman didn't think life was too bad after all so um as william says he was uh cured of his uh was it suicidal mania or whatever term he uses <laughs> and went home back to his uh lodgings I suppose you could say in William's writing there is a fairly cursory attitude to death or kind of harsh attitude to death. But this is something we've discussed before. Life in those days was generally more fragile, basically. You know, medicine was still very much at a rudimentary stage. There weren't things such as antibiotics and really very good ways of treating people. And even in, I think, William's own case, when people had accidents, to us these days, they would seem now really quite minor or certainly things that could have been overcome. But in those days, the repercussions of having an accident were, even a relatively minor one, were much more serious. And uh, later on, in fact, this is what happens to William himself. I think he basically badly strains himself getting off a horse in Mexico and it seems to me reading between the lines 
the damage that he did to himself internally in that accident. He never really fully recovered from, and from that moment on, his health pretty well went downhill to his final death. Obviously, I don't quite know what really happened to him at the very end, because the, the journals just stop. But, as I say, we do have to thank our lucky stars, really, sometimes, when you think how much medical technology and treatment has improved in our time. It was only a very, very small percentage of the population that would have made three score years and ten. So that's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I think uh, you heard there's some interesting insights into uh, the dangers of the early steam railways that featured there. It is quite hard sometimes to try and correspond modern-day Milan with 1840s (laughs) Milan and Monza because there's such big differences occurred over that time. So sometimes with research you just hit a bit of a dead end a bit like the Chevis River that he describes. I'm sure probably somewhere there is some documentation of it or some record of it, but certainly on the World Wide Web it's not available. Just to say, as I mentioned before, those ways of contacting me, either by uh, Twitter or X or uh, Facebook, are available. Scott of the Historic is the Twitter account, and Facebook it is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. I thought I'd just mention that... It was fortunate that I happened to make contact with David Roberts, who I mentioned before. And David is, in fact, uh, himself a bit of a historian. And I just thought I'd give a mention of his website, www.robertspublications.com. And on there, you'll see various books published about local history in the Buxton area of the UK, uh, written by David and um, Alan Roberts and also some stuff that David had done about historical things happening around Milan, including some more um, railways built by a Charles Henry, who was another railway pioneer who came over from the UK, from Manchester, to build another railway line in Piedmont in northern Italy in about 1843, or I think that's when he first moved to Italy to do it. Just thought I'd give a shout-out, as they say, (laughs) to uh, David's website. So that is the end of the episode. The next one begins with William observing another ceremony in Milan Cathedral, and also you'll manage to get a first taste of his poetry as well. This will be the first time that you'll hear his carefully crafted verse. So that's something to look forward to, or maybe not. (laughs) I don't know. We'll have to see how good or bad or indifferent you think his poetry is. Anyway, that is the end of episode 26 of Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. If you have been, thanks for listening. (laughs) 